Lily, you may think that as a freelancer, a job site would not be for you. Yeah, but I've just been having a look on Cision Jobs. And actually on that website, you can search for freelance and part-time opportunities. And you can also select for homeworking. Oh yeah, the search lets you look within PR or journalism jobs and then by sector, salary, job title and hours. Yeah, there's loads on there. So go and have a look. It's scissionjobs.co.uk. and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists. I'm Lily Cantor and I'm Emma Wilkinson. In this series of the podcast we're having a little bit of a change from our usual format and we're talking to journalists who have moved into writing books. It's our summer read special in which we're going to delve into the process and practicalities of a range of different works that include fiction, non-fiction, photography and ghostwriting. If you've ever wanted to know more about how you move into writing books as a journalist, as well as picking up some handy tips, then these next few episodes are definitely a must listen. Absolutely. And today we're speaking to Polly Morland about her new book, A Fortunate Woman, A Country Doctor's Story. It's a real life portrait of an anonymous GP working in a rural practice, and it follows on from a classic account set in the same practice in the 1960s. Polly is a writer and documentary maker who for 15 years worked 15 years in TV for the BBC, Channel 4 and Discovery. She's the author of four books, including The Society of Timid Souls or How to Be Brave, which won a Royal Society of Literature Award, was longlisted for a Guardian First Book Award and Sunday Times Book of the Year. Polly is a regular contributor to newspapers and magazines and also teaches part time at Cardiff School of Journalism. So welcome, Polly. We're so pleased. Hi, we're so pleased to be able to talk to you today about your experience of writing a range of different books. Um, But first of all, we we wanted to start with your most recent work, chronicling the experience of a rural GP. Um, We've both read it all partway through it, and um, we're really fascinated by the kind of unique way it came about. So perhaps we could start with you telling us a little bit about the genesis of the book. Um yeah, of course. Um, I mean, normally, and you guys will know this as journalists, that you, you know, you generally, you don't wait for the stories to come along, do you? <laughs> you, you go out and find them, that gets drummed into you from the cradle as a journalist. But, um, but this story, well, it found me in lots of ways. Um, so it all started back a few months into the pandemic. Um, I'd been working on uh, I'd been working on a different book that's that's still on the shelf over there. My elderly mother had been really ill and had uh, moved into a care home, and I was clearing her house. So um, she lives about 150 miles north from me in Northampton. I was clearing her house. She was a massive book lover, so her book, bookshelves stacked stacked to the gills, and. Um, I'd been clearing one particular bookshelf and I could see this dusty old penguin paperback that had fallen down the back of the shelves. Um, and I, I take, put, pulled it out and had a look at it and it said, A Fortunate Man, The Story of a Country Doctor. And it was by a, a writer that my mum really loved, um, the, the critic John Berger. So I, I'd read some John Berger, but I'd never come across this book before. And I 
opened it. Now it's a, it, it's text and like like many of John Berger's books, it's it's text and photographs. And the opening double page spread is this double page spread of a landscape with a river and a sort of shaggy meadow and a great rise of dark woodland beyond. It transpires that Berger's book is an account of the local doctor who served this this rural community in the valley um, back in the back in the sixties. And I, you know, I'm having a moment where I'm thinking, hang on, because I know the doctor who serves this community today. You know, she's a really remarkable woman, very well loved in the in this quite small rural community. And and actually, you know, the kind of family doctor I wish our our mum had had when you know during those final pretty awful years in that in that house. So. That's, you know, there's loads I didn't know at that point. I mean, I didn't, for instance, know that 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 um, the book had had enormous influence on her. I was to find that out later. So, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd emailed her and she got straight to saying, I don't know whether you've ever come across this book. She was like, came straight back to me um, and said that, you know, that book's had an you know, enormous influence on my working life. You know, let's meet now. I'll, I'll tell you how. So, th- so this project, bloomed from there but it was also so oh oh, you know one level it's really personal very very personal project but also it was the gateway to this much bigger story that that's connected to you know many of the really big issues that are raging in healthcare at the moment and um and so in in a sense that that little tiny story you know a, a tiny story then sort of flung open the doors on on a much much bigger debate so um that's how it all began you mentioned there that there is this link that then transpires in the book that kind of other other connections become apparent at what stage you know you had the initial conversation with her after that email at what stage did you think to yourself there's definitely another book here that you know there's enough of a story um you know to to pitch this idea Actually, while I was standing in my mum's room, right next to the bookcase, I do, I've still got it on my phone. I sent a WhatsApp to my husband, who's at the other end of the country, down in the valley, saying, I think I might have, I think I might have just stumbled on, because I've been wrestling with another book for a couple of years. <laughs> Not quite coming together. And, you know, I think I've had, I think there's something in this. Um, so very weirdly, I mean, and this never happened. <laughs> this hardly ever happens that a, that a project sort of falls together in the way that it did. But it then happened very, very quickly. So I had the very quick email exchange with her. We met the following week. We talked about it. Um, at that point, I said, well, look, let's, let's see if there's any interest out there in this, in this story. I did a... a, a a kind of bit of a, a chunk of really rapid research to just get a sense of the kind of ideas around it, to get a sense of the context of the original John Berger book. Um, uh, then put it, I mean, the, literally the process was short, a very short sort of couple of paragraphs pitched to my agent, who is, you know, agents are always the gatekeepers between writers and publishers, um, saying, you know, does this, do you think this has legs? He was like, yes, I think that has legs. 
so then I did a number of, of longer, you know, longer interviews with, with her and really, you know, kicked the idea around and, had it, and thought very long and hard about how one might structure that kind of story and make it more than simply a, a kind of exercise in nostalgia, looking back to this, what's really quite an obscure book, the book, the, the classic on which it's based. It's loved by doctors, very, very widely read by doctors, but, but doesn't necessarily have a wide mainstream readership certainly didn't at that stage so it was thinking about how can you how can you make this current and meaningful to readers now wrote a proposal and it was very quickly commissioned so that process you know that process from so I found the book in the early summer the book was actually properly commissioned at the very beginning of October so it all happened pretty it all happened fairly fast yeah, pretty fast. Then those layers of um, those layers of coincidence, those layers of relevance and meaning, then accreted over the course of the the writing process, as I think always does with it does with the book. It's quite an organic process. Yes, I mean, as a health journalist, I found it fascinating because I speak to GPs sort of every day as as part of my journalism. One thing that I was really interested in, I was hoping you could expand a bit on, was how you the decisions that you had to make about keeping patients anonymous um, and patients not being identifiable um, and you do talk about this a bit in the book um, because some of the patients you had to get consent for so can you take us through how you approached that um, and was that a discussion that you had with the GP and sort of how did you make that decision together? I mean, in a sense, lots of our very early conversations between myself and the doctor, and we and we keep calling her the doctor because she's she herself is not named in the book. Um, and then you know, perhaps we'll come on to the, the why we made that decision in in within the writing process. But lots of my early conversations with her were, you know, in a sense, that was her primary concern. So she she'd. Um, She'd sent me this email really very early on in the process saying, look, I love my job. I love my patients. Their trust is more, is more important to me than anything else I can think of. <laughs> That's a quote. Um, so we've got to work out a way of making this absolutely copper-bottomed, watertight from a point of patient confidentiality. Um, so then the process of the story, so with the exception of three stories, and I can talk about those in a second, but the majority of stories in the book, you know, so the book gives us a, a, an account of a number of, you know, quite a large number of different consultations between doctors and patients. And obviously what goes on in consultation room, and you'll know this, Emma, you know, people know, it's, it's protected by, you know, professional best practice by law. It, it, you know, it's, it's sacrosanct essentially what goes on in that consultation. Um, so the, the vast majority of stories in the book are composites. Um, uh, the, so the, the doctor and I worked, um, we, we felt around for a while for a way, of, a way of doing this because what I think we both realized very early on is that the heart of this story, which is what, what is the value of a doctor-patient relationship and you know, what are the dynamics of the doctor-patient relationship and why is it so important? 
it was impossible to explore those ideas without stories. It's all about stories. She very early on, the doctor said to me, you know, my work is all about people's stories. Um, so it was how can you tell those stories without compromising confidentiality? So we um, we 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 started with quite a long, as it were, list of different sorts of medical scenarios that one that are uh, patients and their GPs discuss together. Um, and she gave me little sort of two line scenarios so that so that we were never discussing one of her patients who's an actual individual. She'd give me a little two line scenario which she would have created as composites from you know more than 20, well over 20 years practicing as a GP. And then we we almost in a sense, workshop them. So we talked a lot, you know, we did these, we did, we, the, my work with her was all built around interviews. We did a lot of talking about of general, very, uh, of general issues. But then in the case of some of these little scenarios, these vignettes, um, I might, I would just ask her about them, you know. So if you're with a patient who's experiencing X, Y, or Z, what are the kinds of things you might say? What are the kinds of things they might say to you? So we, um, it was a very sort of free form process. And so none of those, um, none of those vignettes with the exception of three relate to a particular patient. They're composites of a number of stories. And because I live in the community where, and, and have for a decade lived in the community where all these stories unfold, I'm very, you know, I'm very familiar with this little community and its dynamics and the sorts of people who live here. and. Um, and that kind of deep knowledge of the community also helped me then write those composite, those write those stories in a way that's felt resonant and, and, and true. Um, in the case of there were three, uh, there were three patients where the nature of the the medical predicament in which they found themselves was such that it would just have been impossible to anonymize because there were such unusual stories. And in those cases. We approached the patient. We'd said that they would be fully anonymized because patients are never named. Um, and would they be happy for that story to be told? And, um, and they agreed on those on those three occasions. But it was a very complicated process. And I have to say it was very much, you know, it was upper, you know, it was uppermost in my mind throughout, because it's so it's so important that's so important to the to the trust on which the whole project was built. Yeah, and it, and it adds that. <clears throat> adds that layer of complexity doesn't it for you having to piece it all together and I understand didn't you put this together um during the the height of the pandemic so how did you actually go about doing those interviews and how did you record them I mean again it would have been pretty you know it would have been all but impossible to do if I didn't live here <laughs> You know, so I live here, right? And so the whole book is set in this in this deep wooded valley with a, with a river running down the, the 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 middle of it, a handful of villages scattered on uh, around on the banks. It's quite a small area, and um, the you know the the way in which we were able to do the interviews is we did a lot of them walking. So it's the most beautiful landscape, um, and so we went for very very long walks in the woods often in the evening, often when it was dark with head torches on, we'd go for these incredibly long dog walks. I record all my interviews, I, I always have. Um, 
So there would have been no question of, of dashing it out in shorthand because they were very long. You know, we'd walk for sort of three hours at a time. And, um, you know, you, you dig deep when you're walking. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rather amazing way to do interviews in a way. Um, they were, not, you know, they were not interviews in the sense that they would be kind of broadcastable. Um, you wouldn't necessarily use them in a, in a podcast format, and certainly not on kind of radio or television. But they were very kind of conversational and discursive and long form, and that just about made it possible. And then, you know, as so, the, my my conversations with the doctor took place over almost a twelve month period, and and then little snippets beyond that. Um, so when lockdown eased, I was able to go and spend some time with her in the surgery. Then lockdown came back, and then we'd be back to going on these very long walks. So um, and you know we communicated a lot, you know, on every available platform really through that time. But but the but the meat of it were were these very very long walking and talking interviews. Yes, I always say if you want to. Um kind of have a real conversation with someone I especially think about the children in this you ask them when they're in the car and you're just chatting and you're not you're kind of side by side and not looking at each other and then it just yeah those conversations start to start to flow a little bit I always remember as a, as a when I worked in documentaries which I did for 15 years before I before I started writing books often you we would do an interview when driving and there is some there's something that comes from it where you're where where perhaps you don't quite have eye contact but maybe that opens things up a little bit I mean I definitely found it incredibly useful in the context of, of this you really get to know someone on a long walk and if you take lots and lots of long walks it really really peeled back peeled back the layers um yeah, in a way that was a very just was a, ended up being a very kind of rich resource. For yeah, I mean that does lead me quite nicely to my next question because you talked about your um, how you'd approach your work in documentaries. Were there any other ways in which your kind of former um, sort of work as a documentary maker informed the way that you approached this book? I mean, I think in a sense I approached the book as a as a piece of documentary work. I, I you know it is a it is a piece of documentary. It's a documentary account, essentially. Um, so there is something about that you learn if you make documentaries on film about close observation, just very close observation of apparently inconsequential details about, you know, if you think about the way that someone is, the way that they speak, not just what they say, but sort of how they say it, the, how they move um not necessarily so much kind of what they're wearing but there's a there's a there's a wholeness that comes from that close observation and so you know and this is not just in my practice on this book it's definitely in those those other earlier books as well um you know I make absolutely copious notes <laughs> to try and capture everything that if I were pointing a camera at this scenario um I'd pick up. So if you think about in a documentary, you might well use, you use cutaways, you, you, you describe a setting, you look at the focus setting in, a, in big wide shots, but you also pick out details. Um, and, and I do that in my note taking process. So alongside this 
extremely fat file of interview transcripts because I do transcribe all my interviews verbatim because there's all sorts of stuff in there. You know, I, d I don't digest them down. I write them. You know, I have a whole lot written down, transcribed, but I also have copious, you know, copious pages of notes of lots of which I don't use, but it really builds a picture. And so that you get a very deep, many layered body of, you know, primary source material from which to draw. Yeah. And how did you go about putting it together when you started writing? Because you've almost got three strands running through because you're reflecting on the original book you've got the sort of the the backstory of the GP and then you've got the GP in practice and the patient and then you've got these three different sections I just wondered how did you decide how that was all going to come together yeah I mean it's a so it's partly highly structured and planned and it's partly quite organic it's a weird mixture of the two so I um I mean the, I, I talk, I've talked about that great big body of material I mean I index and then index again and cross index and so I have a so I know my material incredibly well before I start writing and I have sort of lists I have lists of stories and lists of thematically linked material, lists of ideas, you know, I have, so I have, and then there's a process of weaving them together. I mean, I, from, from the, from very early on, in, well, from before even writing, even the first line, I had an idea of the overall arc of the story that I wanted to follow. So I knew I wanted the book to fall in five parts. And in a sense, I had a governing idea for each of those five parts that, that very much follow the follow the contemporary doctor's story, um, and then I suppose I started by you know I started again before actually writing the the text as it were and start thinking about where where particular stories might fit in with that in a resonant way. Um, so yeah, it's quite it's it's highly structured. However, during the writing process, there's a bit of a music to write, writing, telling a story, isn't there? You know, and, and, and some of that you have to experience in real time. So there's a, so sometimes I would be, I would have a plan of, right, I'm going to write this story and then I'm going to go to that story next. And then actually in the process, you think, oh, that doesn't feel, oh, it doesn't feel quite right. It's just, you know, it's, it's it's too dark, we need some lightness, we need to, we need a, or, or it's too light, <laughs> we need some darkness, we need something serious, or we need to step back, we've had something highly emotional, we, oh, at this point we need to step back and look at the bigger picture and look at, in a sense, some of the, um, some of the ideas that underpin these kinds of interactions. So there's a kind of emotional flow, almost musical flow, that, I've definitely, perhaps more on this book than any I've written before, where, where I've had to go with that flow a bit during the writing process and think, oh, actually, it's not right to go to that story next. I'll go there. So, uh, so it's a combination of something, a process that's quite organic and one that's, you know, highly, highly structured. So this little office I'm sitting in had, you know, those white 
cheats all over every wall with <laughs> notes and arrows and diagrams and plans and little bullet, you know, so it's um it's quite an intricate process, particularly in a long form piece of work, because you can't quite you can't hold the whole thing in your head um in advance. <laughs> so there's a there's a bit of plotting it as you go along. Yeah. Yes. And when you were working on this, were you working solely on this? Were you working on other projects at the at the same time? Because that's something I struggle with sometimes if you've got if you've got quite a few in-depth things that you're focusing on how do you give enough attention to it was it was it just this for that period of time well it was just well it was this and I I was teaching two days a week at School of Journalism in Cardiff throughout the period so the, the book was commissioned a week after I started my fellowship my Royal Literary Fund fellowship at, at um, the School of Journalism so so uh, two days a week I was there with with that hat on but then in reality I probably for the first six months I worked four days a week so I tended to work Saturdays as well I and mean, it was a, it was a huge workload but I totally agree with you Emma that it, the that you know it, it certainly doesn't yield to just sitting down and thinking well I'll just do a couple of hours on this and then I'll go and do something else I could never work like that I need you know I'm I'm I mean, lots of writers do, but I'm, I'm just not one of them. I need nine hours at my desk, really, to, to, to get it done in time, to make enough progress, to maintain momentum, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and just, you know, ask my family. The level of obsession has been fairly, <laughs> fairly full on in terms of just being, um, you know, it absorbing pretty much every waking thought. <laughs> Yeah, and if it's the community that you're in as well, um, I guess there must have been a feeling of, like, how is this going to be received? Absolutely. Um, I mean, absolutely. There's, so there's, there was a sense of, not in a kind of, oh, well, I hope I'm going to get away with this, but more of a, you know, the book is in a sense a love letter to this community. Um, and a love letter to the landscape it's a very extraordinary landscape here and, and so a love letter to the landscape in which it's in which it's set so um you know I did feel a great sense of responsibility to not just to be more not just to romanticize it I did not want to romanticize it I wanted it to be true and I felt a you know a, a a very strong sense of responsibility that it must be true that it must be true and fair and um and authentic at, at, at some level however being here it was so immersive compared to many you know any other journalistic assignment I've ever undertaken because it's just there it's outside my window now it was you know it, it's it's all here and so that again made made that level of sort of immersion in the project just possible physically possible and you alluded to this before but you you've chosen not to name the gp although i presume locally people are going to recognize perhaps who it is um um but what why did you take that decision to to keep her anonymous as well so it's interesting in that in, in part um was inspired by the book that was written in the 1960s, John Berger's A Fortunate Man. So he uses a pseudonym for his doctor, who he calls Dr. John Sattel, but that wasn't his name. 
and um, and Berger likewise didn't name the place in which it was set. It is that is known now, um, and I think that so. There's two reasons. There's there's a layer of discretion around the community and the practice at one level. Just a layer of discretion. It's not a cloak of anonymity. There's a layer of discretion around that. I think for for the for the doctor taking part in this, it was really important to her that it was about show, not tell, and the idea of sort of plonking herself centre stage. She was, you know, she's not after becoming the next celebrity doctor. She, you know, it wasn't about a sort of fifteen minutes of fame thing on her. And there's and there's something about just that layer of discretion which helps with that project. But also, what was what then very much involved in the process of research and then particularly within the writing is that it does something really interesting to the storytelling if you remove some of those specifics so the book is terribly specific and it and it and it's a very intimate portrait of the doctor and and my goodness I'd hope you, you'd feel that you know her really well by the end of the book but there's something universal in the experience of family doctors which the 1960s book tapped into so exquisitely and that I felt was right for some kind of reinvention and reappraisal, you know, more than 50 years later, where it's also looking, so yes, it's about this one particular doctor, but it's about family doctors everywhere and their relationships with their patients. And, and it's been interesting, some sort of early feedback I've had from GPs and, and medics is that, they see, though they may not live in a landscape like this or in a community exactly like this, that there is much in those encounters between doctor and patient that they recognise. So I suppose the book is also reaching for something that's that's universal to that doctor the patient experience as well. And it's, I don't know whether this was your intention or not, but with my health journalist hat on, we're at a point where general practice is facing quite a lot of political and social turmoil, capacity issues, feeling very under pressure. And a lot of GPs I speak to feeling very, very demoralised right now. And um, I mean, is I don't know if you felt that there was a sense when you were writing it that it, that you're kind of updating it for today's society, that there was a you know, a particular context of the NHS and general practice of, of sort of now that you wanted to uh, discuss in the book as well? Yeah, I mean, very powerfully, um, I would say, and that maybe uh, you know, as, you, as you progress through reading it, really the latter portions of the book really try to bring this point home. So yes, the book's about the, the, um, the nature and value of the doctor-patient relationship, but it is also, it is also a clarion call on the, the subject of continuity of care and the decline of continuity of care and the way in which that decline of continuity of care and a shift to a more standardised, more transactional model of healthcare is wreaking havoc within general practice so I mean you asked whether I just that just happened to be going on in the background no that is entirely propelled that is the reason to write the book 
otherwise it is an exercise in nostalgia really um uh, uh, there's also you know the, the I was writing during COVID, but COVID took a number of issues that were already, which I'm sure you'll be you'll be aware of, Emma. That that a number of issues around access, um, retention of uh, retention of GPs, recruitment, and so on. The decline of continuity, very quite steep decline of continuity of care in the last 10, 15 years. Um, those issues were all very much live pre-pandemic, but the pandemic has brought them right up to the surface and has essentially you know flung primary care into a state of acute crisis really and um and this particular story of this particular gp and the way in which those those relationships between doctor and patient play out it it is absolutely meant to be read in the kind of contemporary context. I mean, there's a fascinating body of research, which I um, refer to towards the end of the book. There's a, there's a growing body of research that links continuity of care to better health outcomes, to better retention of doctors, greater recruitment, um, you know, lower mortality even. There's, some, there's a fascinating study that... that um, was undertaken in Norway towards the end of last year um, that uh, across a very wide number of, 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 a, of a huge, huge data set looking at the impact of continuity on health outcomes and how, what a difference it makes, what a difference it makes. So the chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners said this lovely thing and said, you know, if, if relationship-based care was a drug, nice national institute for clinical excellence would mandate its use so in a sense that idea if the relationship with doctor and patient was a drug it would be absolutely obligatory to incorporate it into healthcare policy in a sense that idea thrums away under the entire narrative of the book but rather than in a sense tub thumping about the stats i wanted to deliver that message through a story and obviously this is, um, I believe, your fourth book, is that right? Yeah. So I just wondered, just kind of wrapping up really, is how how was this different um, in terms of getting this book published? I mean, you mentioned you went to your agent. Did you, was it the same publishers you dealt with before or did you have a different publisher and, and, and was that process different this time around? Every book is different in in, in a way, um, in terms of the sort of mechanics of it, not, not hugely different in terms of there's a development process. I mean, you know, I think the, the agent role is often misunderstood, you know, perhaps misunderstood from outside. They're very, very, you know, then they're, they're not purely the business end going, right, she needs a bit more money for the, that's, it's It's less in a sense about that than, about helping you develop an idea and really think about a readership. Um, so the process has been, I, I am with a, so my first three books were published by the completely brilliant profile books who I loved and loved working with and hope to work with again. This book has been published by, by Picador, who have also been completely fantastic actually um, and been a real joy to work with. Um, I mean, in a sense, there's, there's at a personal level, there is something that changes with, with writing 
you know, it being my fourth book rather than my first book. I mean, you, as in all things, you, my God, you learn as you go along. You know, you're, um, so I think there are, I think with this book, I, I've had a, I've perhaps had a clearer sense of what it was I wanted to say. And in a sense, it's the point I've just made about, you know, about the, you know, that single point about the importance of these relationships. They're not just a kind of cosy, nice to have. They are integral to good healthcare, and the NHS depends on them. I suppose having that single idea and then thinking, how, you know, what are the, what are the stories? What are the true stories that are, that that will make that meaningful to someone sitting with a book at home? Because it's always all about the reader. <laughs> so it, it's you know it's not it's not about what you want to say so much. It's about you know how can you speak to the reader in a way that they they will engage with. Um, and so I definitely think through the course of writing four books, I've I've learned to, I've just learned to think about that in a, in a number of ways that, are, that are, you know, I've just developed those ideas about how one might do that. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that does sort of lead us very nicely onto my final question for today, which was going to ask for your top tip for anyone listening who has a book idea in them, perhaps has always wanted to take this step, but didn't know how to do it. And um, so, yeah, your top tip for either getting published or for grabbing the attention of a publisher in the in the first place. Actually, I, I so I remember when I was um, a documentary maker, and I I didn't I'd um, been working on a series for Channel Four um with brilliant science um writer and um scientist called Simon Singh and I you know and I, I vaguely thought oh I'd, I'd love to you know I'd love to write a book I thought I mean I, this is probably 10 years before I actually did write a book and I'd gone I'd gone and said oh you know Simon can I there's something I want to ask you and he said oh okay. I'd gone around and had a cup of tea with him and I said I, I really want to write a book and he, and he said, what about Polly? And I was like, I don't know yet. <laughs> so he'd, A, he'd laughed at me quite kindly. He said, well, I think, you know, I think you need to work that out first. <laughs> he said quite kindly. Um, but actually he made a, a point that's never left me, which was, you know, you sit down to write a book and, you know, it's not like a television production or even a really or even a, a you know such a you know you're going to be living with it for years <laughs> you know it's a long process so you have to really be prepared to live with that subject for two three four even more years um so really make sure it's something that you feel passionate about and that it's a story you want to tell and I think that that idea of the fact that it's you know, it's a very substantial piece of work. And so you have to make sure that the story has enough depth and complexity and, and that you're willing to live with it for all that, not all that time. Um, and then, of course, there's the challenge of communicating that passion. But you've got to really check that you, you care about it. You've got to care about it. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of having getting the idea right in the first place before you move on to any other uh, any other steps. 
making sure that you're clear what you want to do. Um, because as you say, I mean, we've only had the experience of writing sort of textbook, but you know, that process was three years from start to end. So yeah, it's, it's a very different undertaking, isn't it? Um, I mean, that seems like an excellent place to finish, Polly. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we love the book. We would recommend everybody get themselves a copy. Uh, and we also can't wait to see what you do next. Um, so, yeah, we hope you're enjoying this little detour series into our world of journalists and authors. Yeah, and we'll put um, any relevant links we mentioned today and Polly's books in our show notes. And don't forget, you can find out more about us and all our resources at freelancingforjournalists.com and you can come and join our Freelancing for Journalists Facebook community. Yeah, so you could also follow us on social media. Together we're at Freelancing4 and you can also follow us individually. I'm at Emma Journo. And I'm at Lily Cantor. And we just want to say a big thank you to our research assistant, Helen Quinn, and our producer, Maddie Jury. Yes, and there will be another episode along next week. So bye for now. Goodbye.